Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is episode 325 and on today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Professor Joost Augustin about his latest book that explores County Mayo before, during and after the Great War and the Irish Revolution. This book is published by Four Courts Press. Joost spoke to me from his home in the Netherlands. Joost, welcome to the podcast. Let's dive straight in. Could you start by um, providing our listeners with a brief introduction to yourself and your latest work, Mayo, the Irish Revolution, 1912 to 1923? What motivated you to, to, to delve into this particular facet of Irish history? As I gather, you're not Irish yourself. No, that's correct. Um, I am Dutch, uh, grew up in Amsterdam, uh, born in 1960, so a long time ago, um, and only sort of uh, in an odd way got interested in Ireland. Um, I mean, in a human story, um, I got to know an Irish girl when I was studying in Amsterdam, never been to Ireland before that. Um, so I, when I was studying, I went on holiday with her in Ireland and realized there was some something like an Irish revolution, right? I was really unaware of that. Um, although retrospectively, I had seen it in a handbook that I once studied, but it was one page out of 600. So you must excuse me for uh, forgetting about that. But I got to know her just at the moment that I was looking for a good topic for my MA thesis. So um, I got really interested in what was happening in Ireland. Um, some things in my past may have uh, sort of uh, predicated me to be interested in issues of violence and resistance and oppression and things like that, Having being a child of the 1960s. Um, so I chose to do a topic for my MA degree on Ireland. And that went on then to my own uh, programme in Amsterdam saying, well, that seems quite interesting. You're doing interesting primary source research because I went to the National Library in Dublin and looked at a lot of pamphlets that were created in, an, in during the War of Independence and during the Civil War. So that went on and then I became, uh, they said, well, why don't you do a PhD? And I said I was interested in one. Um, so that became my PhD topic um, about how people got involved in political violence. Why does somebody like you or me or anybody else um, in a situation in which they're willing to risk their lives for a political ideal, for something, for change in the circumstances, not to their own benefit, but to the benefit um, of the larger society or for their ideals. So that question really caught me. And initially, I did not have anything with Mayo at that time. This was around 1990. Um, so I had to what I was wanted to try and do was to compare different trajectories of radicalization in different counties um, to understand the process better. So why do does one person become a member of the IRA? His brother doesn't, or his neighbor doesn't. Uh, most people didn't, after all. Only select people became part of the IRA at that time. So what is it that makes one person do it? And you can learn that better if you compare different circumstances with each other. And somewhat coincidental, I chose... Mayo as one of the five counties that I researched for my PhD. So that was partly because my landlady in Dublin, um, her brother uh, lived in Cross. Um, 
And he lived almost next door to Tom McGuire, one of the commanders of the Command of the South Mayo Brigade and later uh, commander of the 2nd Division, uh, Western Division of the IRA in the Civil War. So that was a great contact to have. He was the, the, the most senior surviving member at that point in time. So um, it was a great entry to go through the brother of my landlady to talk to Tom McGuire. So Mayo was in a way chosen because of that um, in the 1990s. So I came, some people still remember me coming to Mayo in the 1989, 1990 and 91 to talk to local people. Um, And I interviewed quite a few former members of the IRA. They were still alive at that time, had to be over 85, by the way, um, to be a conscious member. Um, So that's where my interest in Mayo started. Um, Now, as we all know, it is 100 years ago since the Irish Revolution, what we call it now, took place. So the the events between 1912 and 1923 uh, were now ending the centenary celebrations. Um, And one of part of this centenary celebrations was that Four Courts Press set up this series, a county history series of the revolution. So each county is being described by an author. Um, And they asked me to do one. And they said, well, you can choose one that you like. So I said, well, uh, after a little bit of thinking, I hadn't really written about what actually happened in Mayo. I was more analyzing this radicalization process in Mayo, but the events were secondary. Um, And I, of the five counties that I studied, I liked Mayo best. The people are nice, uh, easy to get along with. um, And I encountered somewhat more... um, uh, people being suspicious of my intentions in the 80s and the 90s. I mean, it was still part of the time of the Troubles. I also studied Derry as one of the counties, for instance. Obviously, you can understand that was even more complicated. Um, but I liked people in Mayo. Mayo is a very beautiful county. Um, a lot of counties are beautiful, but I think the West is most outstanding in that regard uh, for my liking. So there were a number of issues that brought the choice of Mayo uh, for this county history for me uh, to the fore. Um, and of course, there are also particular aspects of, of the revolution in Mayo that are interesting, we, which we will talk about later on in this podcast, um, which also said, well, I want to explore these issues. And one of them, for instance, is um, how the IRA and Mayo got a lot of support, um, far more comprehensive than in many other counties. It was also relatively little violence in the War of Independence, but particularly no real violence against civilians, um, either Protestant or Catholic civilians, um, which is also quite unique. I mean, it was intimidation, but there was nobody killed um, directly as a non-combatant. Um, and lastly, civil war involvement of Mayo is very interesting because Mayo was really one of the strongholds of the Republicans in the civil war. And so those aspects really drew me, make a long story a little bit shorter, to choose Mayo for this book. So I wonder whether we could go back before the First World War, and I wonder whether you could just sort of give us a brief introduction to what Mayo was like and where exactly it is in Ireland, because a lot of people who aren't in the island of Ireland may not know where it is. And then I think we'll we'll move on and talk about the land question, which uh, hopefully the answer you're going to give me will shed some light on the nature of Mayo. Sure. Okay, well, Mayo is one of the western counties in... uh, in the province of Connacht. So it was at that time, in the beginning of the 20th century, the most populous county, uh, most populous rural county um, in Ireland. 
um, particularly in the West. So even more than Galway. And it was also the poorest county, more so than Galway. Although in our perspective, Galway, a neighboring county, has a lot of uh, international knowledge about it. There's songs about Galway, um, and Galway is always seen as this epitome of poverty. But Mayo was actually even poorer than Galway at this time. Mayo is a little bit divided in um, East and West. The West is more uh, rugged, uh, a poorer soil. Uh, Ackle Island is one of the uh, most obvious um, known examples of poverty. And at that time, Ackle was extremely poor as well. But there were other arts, parts of Mayo, uh, particularly in the Western part of Mayo, that were very poor. The Eastern part was a little bit more, uh, was more richer. It had more uh, fertile soil, it's flatter, um, so it's easier to um, to make a living. And what maybe is also outstanding about Mayo is that it does not have any real major town. Um, it does have a major city, I should say. So Galway City is, is big and known. Uh, Mayo has a number of towns, and some of them at that stage uh, were urban areas, uh, like Ballina and Castlebar and Westport. Uh, but even these had, had not a population that exceeded more than 6,000 people. Right? And Galway was much larger at the time, so it was more dominant in that perspective. Um, so I think so. it has a lot of small farmers. It is a very rural, at that time, very rural um, community. And there were a few local industries developed at that time, like Foxford Wool um, and things along those lines. Balana was a, quite a trading, had a bit of a trading post. Westport was a bit of a trading harbor. Um, but economically speaking, it was only just entering um, the wider world. Up till then, it was much more self-sufficient and people um, did not really come to Mayo so much as left Mayo. Um, and particularly migration, um, maybe what stands out in that regard is that, that young women migrated more than young men uh, in Mayo at, at that time. So there was a there was not much future for people in Mayo. Um, if you had land, that would give you some prospect, um, but only for one or two people from the family. There were no cities in which there was a large industry where you could go to, um, although some of these local industries were being at that time. I think that sort of sketches what Mayo looked like at that time. No, I, th I think that's really helpful because it is, it's very, I suppose, the, the closest I would say, it looks very similar to bits of sort of rugged North Scotland. It's very sort of open, um, well, certainly the coastal region. It, it is very, very dramatic uh, and really very different from many other parts of Ireland in terms of certainly my experience on, on the coast there. So let's move on to the, the so-called land question. Now, what, what was this and what influence did it have on politics in Mayo before the First World War? And whether you could shed uh, light on the roles of prominent nationalist politicians like uh, David, O'Brien, Dillon and McBride in shaping the political landscape in the county during this time before the First World War. Sure. Well, in, in a wider sense, um, traditionally, land had been owned by a Protestant elite. Um, so there was a big problem for farmers. And as I said, farming in, Ireland, in Mayo was of a particularly low level in the east, a little bit more richer than in, in the west, was eking, eking out an existence really in the western part of the rugged parts of the county. Um, but a struggle had developed in the late 19th century about ownership of the land. Now, that was a, na a nationwide um, issue um, because uh, the farmers were tenants. They had to pay rent to the landlords, um, and that really made life a lot more difficult. So there was a large demand um, 
also because as a tenant, you were very vulnerable for being thrown off your land. It was hard to invest in your own uh, farm because you might be thrown out and then your investments would have been uh, null and void. So the Land League was developed in, in, the, uh, in the late 19th century and became a huge nation, nationwide or nationwide uh, organization that was struggling for uh, the land for the people in a wider sense and also reductions of rent and that's so on a minor compromise wise but ultimately they wanted land for the people so the ownership of the land transferred from the landlord to the tenants now this land league uh, also propelled to power um charles stuart parnell who became a very famous leader of irish nationalism and the first also then to develop an irish uh, uh, party that became dominant in uh, westminster dominant in a, in a sense, in the context of Irish politics. Now that Land League was established in Mayo. And that is not coincidental because as I pointed out, the poverty and the of farmers in Mayo was particularly large. So Michael David, um, who also um, was an influential person in believing that Ireland should be independent, um, and but later joined uh, the Irish party um, and was an MP in Mayo, he was one of the founders um, of the Land League in Mayo. So that was in the 1880s, um, 1870s, 1880s, that that struggle was particularly virulent. Um, David then became an MP, became very famous and strong. Um, he resigned famously uh, over the Boer War and the English involvement in it. He didn't want to be part of a, of a state that was suppressing uh, the wishes of population, as in South Africa, of course, that had overtones uh, for the Mayo, for the Irish situation, and also for Mayo. So Mayo has a particularly radical um, history in the land question, starting with Michael David and the Land League. Um, and then in the early 20th century, the Land League had sort of died down. Economics, economically, things went well. Um, there, in 1903, there was a Land Act passed that would facilitate this transfer of land from the landlords to the tenants, um, which basically said that if a landlord is willing to sell to the tenants, the state will pay the landlord a very handsome sum. And then the tenants, the new become new owners of the land, have to pay off uh, buying the land to the state. So everything went through the state. And that sort of, in a way, calmed down things a little bit. But this transfer of land went very slowly. And the, the new organization that became really dominant in the pre-war pre-war time is the United Irish League. And the United Irish League, again, was established in Mayo. So Mayo is really at the forefront of agricultural radicalism um, in the late 19th, early 20th century. William O'Brien, also, although a native of Cork, had uh, settled in Mayo, um, was also uh, an MP um, and set up in, this con in the context of the early 20th century, the um, All for Ireland League. Um, and O'Brien, although a radical in some ways, understood, or at least he claimed that the best way forward was Ireland to find a compromise between the, the interest of landlords, the interest of unionists, um, and the interest of uh, tenants and Catholic nationalists, I should say. So Mayo became sort of a fighting ground for a struggle over what kind of way forward is there for Irish nationalism. The Land League had established a very strong Irish Nationalist Party under Charles Stuart Parnell had divided over uh, over his uh, divorce case, or an affair with a divorcee in the in the nineteen in nineteen nineties or eighteen nineties, um, 
but O'Brien was challenging this power of the Nationalist power Party, which was more confrontational, and he wanted to find an accommodation. The, the, the Act of 1903, the Wyndham Act, you know, that transferred the, the land, had been a result of um, a cooperation between nationalists and unionists, between landlords and tenants. And they had come out with this act that would facilitate the transfer of uh, the land. So in this way, um, he believed that all the grievances that were in Ireland could be accommodated by cooperation, by coming together. Now, in a way, sensible idea maybe, but not something that was as popular as it seemed initially. So the battle between the nationalists who wanted confrontational politics and wanted self-home rule, so self-government for Ireland within the United Kingdom, versus William O'Brien, who once tried to get an accommodation through the All for Ireland League, was essentially lost by O'Brien. But again, it made Mayo, and Mayo was a, one of the battlegrounds in this because William O'Brien himself stood as an as a candidate uh, for Parliament in Mayo in the early 20th century. So one of his major opponents um, was uh, John Dillon, who was the MP for East Mayo. So he was the representative of the Irish party, of one branch of the Irish party that had split in, a, in the 1890s. Um, so him, uh, and he was a native um, of Mayo and a, an MP for Mayo, sorry. Um, so Dillon and O'Brien were the real antithesis at that time in the early 20th century over the land question and how to move forward with nationalism. At this stage, the more radical versions of the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which were uh, in, initiating or was desiring of an Irish Republic, of an independent Irish state, uh, which of course meant you needed to go further than what Dylan did, uh, and certainly further than what O'Brien did, was still of a fringe movement. However, in Westport in particular, um, McBride, the McBride family uh, lived in, in party in Castle Bar, partly in Westport, but based in Westport originally. And John McBride, who had fought in a Boer War on the side of the Boers against the British, um, he um, had strong ties with Mayo through Westport. And his two, he had two brothers um, who were also extremely active in the IRB, in the Irish Republican brother. So there were already sort of kernels of small um, cells of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which were relatively active and particularly to the Mac, through the McBride family. Um, so Anthony McBride, um, who was a, a doctor, also a local uh, doctor in Mayo, uh, much later county doctor, he was uh, one of the moving forces in the more radical version of politics. It was not very, it was weak and quite insignificant in Mayo and in Ireland as a whole at that time. Um, but within Mayo itself, um, there was a very, strong um, radical notion, particularly around Westport. So a lot of these people were based around, that I've discussed here, were based around Westport. So Westport was a little bit um, different than particularly the area in East Mayo where Dillon was really dominant uh, with the Irish party. So constitutional nationalism, as they call it, those who were trying to find an accommodation through parliament with Britain, they were very strong, particularly in the eastern side of Mayo, but everywhere they were present enough to win elections. Um, but there was definitely a sort of radical uh, notion in Westport. Um, so Westport was the core um, of what later um, became a very strong um, IRA organization in, in, in the world. Um, so I think that's if you look at the period before the First World War, 
Um, this is sort of how you have to see Mayo politics. National, nationwide, very radical through all these movements that were started in Mayo and became a national, nation, nationwide feature. The United Irish League became extremely dominant, was encapsulated in the Irish party um, at that stage. Um, the Land League had started there. The All for Ireland League had a big, big battleground with William O'Brien in Mayo. And uh, there were some important IRE members and Major John McBride, who was executed, uh, of course, after the Easter Rising. Um, and his brothers were very instrumental in keeping the IRB alive. And they remained, uh, McBride's, John McBride's brother, remained very active in the IRB and became an, an, a TD later when the Doyle was set up. Um, and was still a, a TD after the Civil War, although he was already quite uh, old by that in that stage. He was in the sixties. So I think that's the, the best sketch of, of uh, Mayo politics before the war. So I wonder whether I'm just going to suggest taking question four and then moving back to question three, because I think it'd be quite useful to put a bit of context on the First World War and its outbreak and its impact, sure. and then the political impact of from the Easter Rising. Okay, so edit that bit out. So. Just when we actually see the outbreak of the First World War, this had a major impact on local politics and the and the positions of various groups in Mayo. How did this global conflict, certainly in its early stages, uh, impact on the region and and particularly for groups like you know uh, unionists and labour activists? And was there much support for the war in the in the initial recruiting or the volunteer stage? Of, of of 1914 and 1915. Well, of course, the war had a, had a major impact on on everyone, um, and also in Ireland, in Britain, in, in uh, the whole world, but also in Mayo. Um, initially, support was sort of double. Most people, uh, particularly after John Redmond, um, um, of the reunited Irish party at that stage, had given his support for the for Britain in the war, and uh, in a month after the start of the war, had called it upon people to join the war uh, on the British side and go and fight in France and Belgium. Um, the initial reaction was relatively positive on both sides. I mean, on the unionist side as well as on the national side, the unionist side is quite natural. On the national side, there was at least verbal support. However, what is problematic for uh, a county like Mayo, because it's so rural, um, very few farmer sons had an inclination to join the army. And initially, the army was a voluntary army, so there was no need to, there was no draft of no uh, recruit, forced recruitment. So in Mayo, recruitment was actually very poor and it remained very poor throughout uh, the whole First World War. As I said, there were very few major cities, very little industry, and the tendency was for working class uh, men to join the army. Farmers needed to be there at the farm to ensure that the harvest was bring, brought in, that things were sown, etc. So the the farming did not really allow people to leave, and it was much easier for working class people. And because Mayo was such a rural county, recruitment was very poor in Mayo. Um, and there was a lot of complaints about it from the state, from British state, of course, and how to do it. So although there was support for the British side against uh, Germany, generally speaking, um, active support was very little. So, in, and of course, there was criticism. There was certainly an anti-recruitment um, campaign, particularly from that little uh, particularly in Westport and from people who were associated with the IRB elsewhere. I mean, it was not just in Westport, they were also elsewhere. There were people uh, affiliated, but there were incidental like Michael Kilroy in Newport or Dick Walsh in Bala. So there were different people in different areas um, associated with the IRB and with anti-recruitment. But the war changed a lot of things. It brought, of course, 
um, may or much more into the wider world. The process had started already, economically speaking. Um, there was a demand for food. Uh, prices for agricultural products went up. Um, so in that sense, price for the farmers did well um, because so many men had been joining the army and were left. There was also a high demand for labor. There was a, a tradition in Mayo to to um, migrate for seasonal migration to Britain to work in the industry there or in agriculture there and then come back um, during the summer so as to work their own fields. So it raised also um, uh, the, the wages of people during the war, which gave an opportunity for labor. Now, in the pre-war situation, um, famous uh, names of James Connolly and Jim Larkin, um, who, particularly Jim Larkin, who had uh, initiated a large drive to uh, unionize labor. Um, so you see, beyond the traditional uh, labor unions that were mostly for skilled workers, now there's also a union for unskilled workers, which is becoming uh, very prominent in Mayo, very active in Mayo. Like, for instance, for carters. So there's a union set up for carters so they can raise the price for bringing around uh, deliveries. You know, like we have delivery vans everywhere. In, uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, you had carters that delivered things, goods from here to there. And they could raise their prices because they were unionizing. They came together and said, this is our minimum. This is the price we charge for bringing around this kind of stuff here or there from this distance to that distance. So you see a large amount of unionization and an activity of the official Labour Party and Labour unions, which in the towns had uh, a reasonable amount of success. Of course, they had this difficulty that farmers are not unionizable and there were not very many um, uh, farm laborers because most people were working on very small farms that couldn't afford laborers so most people were independent farmers who some quite a few of them by the beginning of the war 70 percent of mayo farmers owned their own land um, so they were not going to unionize so there was definitely an opportunity for labor in the circumstances of the war um, but ultimately labor could never be a very strong force in mayo because there were not that many workers um, and farming was very dominant and farming was had become successful in obtaining the land for the farms. But it did, of course, change things because that unionization, because the voice of labor was more heard in, in the towns, labor became a very prominent uh, power in local politics. Um, so you see the rise of labor and an opportunity of labor as a result of, of the war. For unionism, it was much more complicated because that process of losing the power over the land, that 70% of the land had been sold to the tenants, meant um, that landlords were losing their power over society. They had a certain standing in society, but of course there was also a certain amount of, of envy and anger against landlords because they were the ones in power traditionally for centuries. Um, and otherwise, the Protestant community in Mayo was very, very small. There's only a couple of percent of, of people in Mayo were Protestant, and some of them associated with the British state. Um, and there was some minor communities, particularly in North Mayo, of the various denominations of Protestantism. But it was such a marginal group that they had no political power. Um, and their political power was derived from the landlords and having so much control over the land. And that was undermined by the fact that um, the land was sold. Another, a, a third, maybe interesting development in the in the war is the the rise of the suffragettes. So the suffragettes um, 
were, of course, in England already there since the late 19th century, particularly in the early 20th century in Ireland. Uh, in the couple of years before the First World War, there was also a rise in, uh, in uh, suffragette movement. Um, in Mayo, you don't really have that movement. There are people coming from Dublin, particularly, to mobilize women. Um, and that was relatively successful also among more um, um, liberated men, in a sense, men that had a, a more progressive view on society. Um, so you see that the war also opens up people's minds to new ideas and new ways of thinking. Um, and of course, in directly after the war, the, the struggle for the vote for women was successful. And you see that uh, the women's vote and the fact that women are allowed to vote has a large impact on local politics in particular. Um, and you see that there's a lot of attention by the different parties to the women's uh, vote and why, how they can mobilize them to be part of it. So in that sense, the war um, gave great opportunities for the for economically um, um, and also uh, politically it opened up many things. So opening up of Mayo towards the wider world, I think is the most important aspect um, of the impact of the of the war on local politics. Now, moving to probably the biggest shock in politics during the First World War in Ireland, and this is the Easter Rising. Now, the Irish Parliamentary Party had strong had a strong position in Mayo before the war, and obviously uh, as a result of the, of the land war and the land reform that, that their, their, their activities brought. But from 1916, Sinn Féin um, now start to rise across Ireland and pose a challenge to this pre-war dominance. How did this shift uh, unfold in local politics in Mayo? And what were the key factors that contributed to Sinn Féin's successful challenge to the Irish Parliamentary Party's uh, former dominance? Right, so indeed, there are more of the the nationwide developments that explain this rise um, of Sinn Féin and republicanism um, also, of course, affect Mayo um, in a similar way. And maybe there are some slight deviations that I'll mention in a minute. Um, But up to 1916, there is a certain amount of uh, unease developing in our society about the war and about the toll of the war. Uh, So you don't see uh, the enthusiasm for support for the British effort in the war is not really uh, increasing, it's rather decreasing already slowly uh, in 1915 in particular. That doesn't necessarily mean a a rise of radical politics. Um, And most of the, uh, the the shift of the radicalization and the shift from the Irish party to Sinn Féin can be explained by the aftermath of 1916. People seeing how the state overreacts in many ways. Many people in Mayo were arrested, even though nothing really happened in Mayo during 1916. Uh, whereas one or two minor incidents, and particularly in Westport, um, the volunteers went to march on the Sunday after the surrender. Um, of the rising in in Dublin, and many of them were arrested. Um, and people felt generally that there was an overreaction. And of course, the execution of 15 of the leaders, which could have been 90, because there were 90 death sentences uh, meted out after the rising. Um, and the way that was conduct- those executions were conducted, um, not in one go, but every day, one or two diff- different people being executed, James Connolly being strapped to a chair and executed because he was wounded so he couldn't stand up. All those things were had an emotive uh, reaction among the Irish population. Also, of course, a lot of Irish people um, did not disagree with the objectives of the Easter Rising. And Easter Rising was to establish an independent Irish state. 
Most Irish people, most nationalists, I mean, they voted. 80% of the MPs elected in Ireland voted were nationalists. So the ideals were not different. Using violence and force was not something that um, got that much support. Um, but people saw that the, rise, the rising was conducted by people who seemed to be very idealistically inspired. Um, they didn't do any strange thing. They didn't massacre anybody. They didn't, there was no real uh, any sense of war crimes or anything. So they were supposed to be gallant uh, rebels. Um, so the contrast between the British reaction and the way the, the rebellion was conducted or the rising was conducted made people move towards Sinn Féin. That was not like in, not an instant issue. Um, there were other issues that came on top of that um, period as well. Um, you see that those who were involved in the rising were initially punished, but um, they were in the, quite most of them were released by Christmas 1916, and other the, the last were released in the beginning of 1917 as a part of a conciliation process between the government and, and Ireland. Um, and many Irish volunteers who had not participated in the rising, also in Mayo, that was a big issue, um, felt that they had lost out and they wanted to see and try and find a new opportunity to show that they were willing to do their bit for Irish freedom, as they would put it. So the Irish volunteers are reorganizing and then Britain is very hesitant in its suppression of that. Um, so initially this is all done in secret and gradually the Irish volunteers are coming out um, in 1917 um, and the, the state doesn't really know how to deal with this. So if you have large groups of people uh, mobilized or walking up and down uh, the village street um, in military formation, what are you going to do about them? How do you suppress them? Um, and they were very, the state didn't really know how to do that. So they sometimes they arrested uh, the leaders of these kinds of uh, parades that were going on um, or marching. Um, and then the IRA confused them by making unclear who was the leader or if somebody was uh, taken to court, they would not recognize the court. And all those kind of issues meant that um, it was an opportunity for volunteers or for Republicans to show their defiance of the state. You could not really convict them to any long times in prison. Um, so the standing of Republicans was rising because of this hesitance. And the unease about the war generally in Ireland was also growing. And a big thing in this conversion, in 1917, there are a number of by-elections, not in Mayo, but elsewhere, which were successful uh, for Sinn Féin. Not all of them. They didn't win all the by-elections at this stage. So the, the change of support from Sinn Féin to the Irish party was not conclusive yet in 1917. That was really sealed by the threatening introduction of conscription in Ireland in 1918, in March 1918, when you had the conscription crisis. Um, and then a lot of particularly farmers and particularly in Mayo uh, would be very against conscription. And that really sealed the faith of, uh, of the British government and also of the Irish party in an Irish context that people, in a, in a way, wholesale went over um, to Sinn Féin. Now, in a Mayo context, what is important is that there was a strong core of, of IRA or of IRB activists, particularly around Mayo, but also elsewhere, that could form the basis of such a, a movement away from the Irish party. And they had no success electorally before 1916. Um, they were a very quite a marginal group, but they were known to be in existence. Um, and they capitalized on this on the situation after the rising and after this changing sentiment in Irish society um, by 
getting people to support them. Now, what is very peculiar or particular about the west of Ireland and its um, rural agricultural base, and particularly in Mayo, which was so, um, in a way, cut off from the wider world, is there's a very strong sense of homogeneity in society. So the whole society comes together and um, enforce, in a way, in social uh, conventions, a joint view on things. Because Protestants were such a minority, they, their position was very irrelevant in politics. It was the Catholic community that decided themselves. And Mayo showed a very strong sense of going all together in one direction and not allowing too much debate within uh, within the community itself. So what you see in Mayo is that once there is this movement towards Sinn Féin, almost everybody goes with them. Um, and that is quite different than in some other parts, say in the southern part or particularly in the eastern and northern part of Ireland, where the socioeconomic makeup is much more complicated. You have large farmers, smaller farmers, rich farmers, poor farmers, land laborers in larger numbers. So the, so the makeup, socioeconomic makeup of these counties are more complicated than in the West, which is fairly straightforward. Everybody is sort of, is much more similar than they are with similar interests than they are in other counties. So once, um, people start moving from the Irish party to Sinn Féin, they do it sort of wholesale. Everybody, I mean, that's a big word, but a greater majority uh, starts to support the radical version. And that is very particular to the West and very peculiar and even more particular um, to Mayo, a real uh, feature of Mayo that there is that homogeneity. So this is how, um, you know, how that process of change is taking place everywhere in Ireland among nationalists. Um, but it's particularly strong in Mayo, where support for Sinn Féin was actually far larger than elsewhere. And, and you know, as you've touched on, uh, your book looks at this process of radicalisation amongst Republican activists in Mayo. Um, how did they actually get the um, local population on board? What sort of, um, I suppose, mechanisms and social pressure and things like that? And, and to what extent did they set up, uh, I suppose, a Republican counter-state? I know in certain parts of Ireland that Sinn Féin was very successful in setting up a parallel government to the official uh, organs of the British state local government. And these actually had courts and, and their own sort of um, administration. What's the situation in Mayo? Well, the existence of the counter-state, um, we should not exaggerate that um, in a general sense um, and also not in Mayo. Um, I mean, quite famously, what the the RIC, the police sergeant in Tourmakidi, you know, a village in, in Mayo, um, he remembered that the worst thing that happened as a result of the existence of the counter-state and the boycott of the British state was that they did not get fresh milk anymore um, and they had to use... Uh, sterilized milk or condensed milk um, for, uh, you know, in the household. So the counter state is there. And it is actually also significant that the first um, official Doyle court uh, that dealt with land issues was established in Mayo. Um, so again, because of this agricultural situation that, that is there. Um, so the counter state is present. And it is, of course, easier um, if you have a dispute. Disputes are usually between um, landlords and laborers or la landlords and farmers um, and in that the counter state would be more likely to take the side of the farmer so farmers are be quite happy to turn to the counter state for uh, a solution than they do to the British state but it's not so that the British features of the British states like the court system or the police system were no longer operative they were still operative throughout the whole war of independence in, in Mayo as well 
um, to a larger and lesser extent, because when the fighting became serious in 19, late 20, early 21, um, it was difficult to, to uh, run any feature of a state um, peacefully, including court cases, etc. Um, so the process of radicalization that takes place, um, the counter-state is important as a uh, as a visible feature of allegiance. Um, but many people had very little to do with the state in those days. Um, not many people went to court. There was very little crime in, in Mayo and Ireland generally, but particularly in rural counties like Mayo, um, at least not reported. Um, crime was, the disputes that happened were between, uh, if it was not between tenants and landlords, it was between different people taking uh, tenancy, and then particularly in relation to uh, graziers. So there were, what was developing in Mayo was that large of the land, large landlords were renting out land um, to farmers to raise cattle. So cattle were fattening up in Mayo on grassland. And of course, that took away land from small farmers. So that was, this was a tension that was in society a lot. Um, and here, farmer interests tried to use the counter-state to get their interest uh, protected. And that was reasonably successful in, in a sense of arbitration in the 19th during particularly after 1916 and 17 and 18. Um, and then they set up official door course in Mayo for the first time to settle these issues. Um, of course, there was a fear that um, these core, these alternative counter-state would be too radical. And there was a fear among the leadership of, the, of Sinn Féin and also the IRA, among most of them who were essentially middle-class people, that there would also be a social revolution and that private property would be undermined and that you could just by force take people's land. So they were very hesitant to support real social change. But local interest, without undermining the social fabric of society, um, the interest of local people would be better fed by the counter-state. Now, the radicalization is, in a in a physical force sense, is actually very slow in Mayo. Um, so although, yes, people start supporting Sinn Féin, yes, they support the minor existence of the counter-state, um, there is no not much force to ensure that people who are willing to go to the existing British institutions to use them, um, partly because using violence is very difficult against somebody else that uh, that is a member of your own community. So you see very in some of the southern counties, there is this radicalization taking place because the IRA or then the Irish volunteers still were opposed by different interests. There were more clashes in society. So there were more enemies. And if you have an enemy who opposes you actively, you become more radical in your position. In Mayo, the Irish volunteers became quite dominant in, in Catholic society or nationalist society, and they were not really opposed. The Unionists were far too weak to do so or very, and not very numerous. Um, so they could not. Um, and because most farming, the socioeconomic makeup of Mayo was quite homogenous, there were very little, few tensions within society. And as a result, who are you going to use the violence against? Um, and that's what Mayo became a very uh, non-violent organization, a very non-violent county in relation to other counties in Ireland, particularly in the South. Um, so the volunteers are developing, they get great social standing, they can enforce a certain amount of adherence to the counter-state, but the state is not very active in general, so that does not happen all the time. Um, people still go to school, to national school, that is not stopped or anything, and otherwise you have very little interaction with the state. Um, the next step is to attack the police. Now, that 
happened very little. Only really one major incident at the end of the war uh, was that during the war, one of the resident magistrates in Westport, the most radical part again, who also most easily radicalized in this period, um, he imprisoned quite a few volunteers who were active. And because there were many volunteers in Westport, they were more likely to be prosecuted. They were more likely to be sentenced. And um, so this is Arwin Milling. He's a resident magistrate in uh, Westport. He was uh, attacked and killed in the early part of 1919. But that was sort of the only expression of the use of force until uh, violent or lethal force until 1920, later into 1920. So what you can see in there is that the radicalization process is really a result of um, engaging opposition. And in Mayo, there was generally very little opposition encountered by those who were against the state, so by the Irish volunteers, by Sinn Féin, because the local population was supporting them wholesale. Except in Westport, there was some of these ex examples of the state uh, more actively countering the Irish volunteers, but that was also because the Irish volunteers were particularly strong in Westport uh, as compared to other parts um, of Mayo uh, at, that, at that time. Um, obviously, following the First World War, there's a war of independence, um, and this kicks off. And then following that, there is the Civil War. Now, this arises um, once you have two sides, which are one who support the treaty that um, Michael Collins and company have made with the British and another group that uh, have become anti-treaty or want to continue the struggle uh, to get better terms. Now, how did the, the county or Mayo, how did Mayo become one of the leading anti-treaty forces during this period? And what factors were behind this uh, position that many people took in account? All right. Well, it, it is slightly in line with this uniform political um, tendency to uniform political organisation in, in Mayo uh, over other counties. But still, that does not explain why Mayo stands out to other Western counties. I think what was peculiar, we have to go back to the end of the War of Independence, right? So violence came to Mayo very late. Um, it really only started. Uh, real confrontation with the police was really something of uh, March 1921. So the last four months, three months in March, April, May in 21, were particularly violent in, in many parts of Mayo, particularly in the West again, but also a little bit in the South and also a little bit in the, in the Northeast, uh, but concentrated in the West. As a result, the volunteers who were engaged in this, uh, there were a few lethal lethal casualties, but not too many. There were not many people arrested as a result. The volunteers seemed to be um, very strong because they attacked the police. They were not uh, fairly successfully in a few occasions. I mean, we're, only, we're only talking about a handful of major ac actions. Um, but it gained them some weapons from the police. It gained them a lot of standing in society. These people had been show had shown that they could fight the, the the police and then very large searches with military and even spotter planes to try and, and locate the IRA had been unsuccessful. Um, so the IRA managed to get away, not be caught. Um, they were very buoyant and uh, full of confidence that they could fight um, the authorities, the police and the military. And there hadn't been very major repercussions for society by this violence. So in many southern counties, there had been a lot of, there was this policy of uh, counter reprisals uh, by the state. So towards the population. So if there was an ambush in front of the in a village and nobody told the authorities who had done it, a number of houses would be blown up by the authorities. Now, this did not happen in Mayo. So society saw the IRA, the Irish volunteers, as very strong and successful. 
Um, and the Irish volunteers themselves were very buoyant and full of confidence. So when the truce came, they came out of hiding from being on the run, came back home. They were celebrated. A lot of young men who had not been involved joined the IRA. And it happened to be that all these IRA men thought that, okay, the fight is, if the fight has to continue, it will be fine. We can do it. And society in Mayo also supported this. So what they call trusselier. So a lot of people, young people joined the IRA in the truce in the uh, period in which it was not clear yet what the treaty was going to be. So the IRA in Mayo became very large. And so this wholesale change and wholesale support for the IRA was there. And almost all the leaders went anti-treaty. So uh, Michael Kilroy, um, as I mentioned, and uh, Tom McGuire that I mentioned, they became all, were both uh, MTDs as well. They both went anti-treaty um, and most of the officers followed them. There were very few exceptions on the officer level of people that went pro-treaty. Uh, I mean, Joe Ring is one of them, um, famous family in Mayo still, uh, politically speaking. But that was also a little bit accidental. Um, apparently, Joe Ring was a little bit frustrated but he was below Michael Kilroy, so his ambitions were a bit frustrated. But mostly, I think, is because he was a liaison officer between the British authorities and the IRA in Mayo during the truce period, which made him more likely to be looking for uh, cooperation rather than for struggle. Um, so he chose the pro-treaty side. And there's a few uh, of the Rouanes in, this, in the eastern part of the county. They had a bit of conflict with the with the IRA themselves over funds that had been paid out to people and they had couldn't be accounted for it and looked like a little bit of corruption. Um, so they were annoyed with the leadership. So they went pro-treaty. But almost everybody went anti-treaty and the IRA had grown very strong within uh, Mayo, particularly after the truce because of those particular circumstances and that late activity. Now, what also contributed is that the officers that were in charge and Tom McGuire and Michael Kilroy were part of that, but it also happened in, in the eastern northern part, were very efficient. But Tom McGuire and Michael Kilroy became the two divisional commanders, the, the western divisions that of the IRA that included Mayo. Um, so Tom McGuire more of Mayo and Galway and, and Roscommon and, um, and Kilroy more North Mayo, West Mayo and Sligo. They were very efficient and very, um, they had a very good name. They were very serious uh, men, very dedicated, uh, non-drinkers. Um, they got great admiration from people. So they were very successful in the, in the truce period to mobilize people. It was even very difficult when Michael Collins came to Mayo during the truce after the treaty was signed, when the elections were on, he got into great trouble. He was uh, heckled, booed, um, the IRA prevented him from uh, getting a large audience at a public meeting. Some of his associates were arrested because they were uh, felt threatened by the local IRA. So um, although they didn't touch Michael Collins in any way, it was showing that the IRA in Mayo was particularly strong and almost entirely uh, anti-treaty. Pro-treatyites were either quiet or they had left the county like Joe Ring uh, and did not really have a presence. Order. So the pro-treaty side did not have a military presence in Mayo during the truce period. So when the Civil War broke out on 28th of June, 20. Two, uh, they were not there. 
And Michael Kilroy was also particularly good in military organization. So he established very early on during the truce period, a grenade factory in Castle Bar as the, his headquarters of his division. Um, so he was militarily preparing for conflict uh, for a long time and there was very little interference. They managed to ensure that when um, food was difficult to get, that there was a distribution system for poor people. So they, they were very smart in um, ensuring that the local population supported them. So in that way, um, Mayo became one of the very strongholds and of the Republicans during the Civil War and the one that held out longest compared to anybody and compared to almost all other counties in Ireland. They even fought on until 1924, right? The Civil War ended officially when the ceasefire was called in April uh, 1923 and then when de Valera in May 23 uh, called off the struggle entirely. Um, in Mayo, they decided we don't care what De Valera thinks or what the leadership thinks. We are going to fight on. Not everybody, but quite a group of people continued to fight on. So there were the Civil War really went on in a, with the same features after the ceasefire, after the, the end of the Civil War. There was still Civil War in 1924, uh, essentially in Mayo. So also the terrain in Mayo is, of course, quite suitable for a kind of uh, guerrilla warfare um, because of the, the terrain that is very rugged in many parts. And they still had a good bit of support among the local population. And so all that put together um, explains why the Civil War in Mayo was particularly strong. While during the War of Independence, they had been very late starting this violence that they that had started to develop in 1919 in, in many other in many southern countries. So as we come to the end of the interview, what would you uh, like people to take away from reading your book? Um, and in, in their sort of understanding of the sort of period we're looking at, obviously the pre-war crisis from 1912, ending with the, the Civil War in 1923. Well, I suppose in a, in a general sense, I hope that it will give you a bit more flesh to the story that is being told about the general developments in the in War of Independence and Civil War and, um, and during the Easter Rising. So the whole period, all those, is, of course, are described elsewhere in a national level. Um, there are some um, books about Mayo incidents or parts of aspects of the conflict in Mayo. Um, but what is developing in this book is not just that process of radicalization and the struggle, but also how that struggle impacts on local life, right? So we tend to isolate the conflict from um, ordinary people and what happens. I remember interviewing men that were not in the IRA, but of that period, and um, um, and when I asked them, why were you not in the IRA? He said, well, you know, we had better things to do, you know, like tilling the land or something like that, right? So um, a lot of ordinary life had to continue. You could not just have a struggle. And people that can have a tendency to think that the struggle dominated everything, but or living a life dominated most people's life. Um, so what I'm trying to show in the book is that the conflict has to be situated in what is happening in society and that, of course, there's an interaction between the conflict and what happens in society. Society determines the conflict and the conflict determines what happens in society. So that interaction, I think, is is most important. And maybe lastly, in that context, is um, that if we investigate all these local county events, like in this series that this book is part of, um, and we know more about the detail of particular developments, particularly radicalization processes and de-radicalization processes, a process of support or non-support, 
we start to understand that process much better. So rather than looking at it more generally, we zoom in on particular circumstances and then we can determine, oh, see, well, why is this happening in this county in that circumstances? We can identify the causes um, of certain developments and understand the whole process uh, of conflict uh, much better. So it adds not just to our local understanding, but it also understands to our broader understanding of uh, violence and the development of it and the impact. Now, Yus, I have just remembered that you did also gave me a, a question. So that was the not the final question. This is the final question that you 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 thought might be quite helpful. Now, was there anything remarkable in what you uh, did in your research, or did you discover anything remarkable in your research in Mayo during this period? Well, I mean, there are always a number of little uh, gems that you come across, um, things that you didn't expect. Uh, I mean, the, the way the, the civil war was fought out and how few casualties there were, despite the, the many uh, um, events in which pro-treatyites and the anti-treatyites uh, met each other, militarily speaking. So you had, could have six hours of battle with one person wounded, um, which gives a quite a different perspective on conflict and fighting. Um, but the small gems that I, I found were, I think, were also also nice and, and things that really stick with me. Like um, at one point during the fighting, it was reported in the newspapers that research had found that if you were in hospital, having um, alcohol served by the by the hospital um, as a way of treatment was not beneficial to you recovering, which was quite a which was quite seen at that time. Um, as a disappointment for many, because apparently if you came to hospital, you got whiskey at the end of the day, every day, because they thought that would help you recover. And um, so they stopped doing that because it was found that it wasn't effective. So I thought it was quite funny, uh, personally. Um, less funny and more interesting that I came across was that um, what one of the first things the Doyle government did in 1919 was abolishing workhouses. Um, and instead setting up a system of county hospitals. So this really became effective after, you know, when the truce came in and the provisional government came. Um, but so this amalgamation of the workhouses and the abolishment of the workhouses, which were then used by anti-treatyites as their barracks for their uh, armed forces, um, meant that everybody who was treated in a workhouse or was a was resident in a workhouse had to go to the county hospital and was going to be concentrated in Castle Bar. But Castle Bar did not have enough space to accommodate them all. Um, but they really wanted to get rid of these workhouses. So one of the things that they said, well, how can we reduce the number of people that need to be facilitated in Castle Bar in the new county hospital? And they said, well, you have these unmarried women with children um, that are also in the workhouse. Um, they are not really, they're really undesirable kinds of uh, members of the of uh, inmates, as you could call them, um, or patients or uh, members in the workhouses, maybe we should find a way to accommodate them differently. A different institution should do this. Uh, and maybe the Magdalene Laundries should form a way out for these people to be taken care of. So in a way, what seems to have happened is that the whole scandal over the Magdalene Laundries and the treatment of women and unmarried mothers that developed you know, in the last 20 years or so, um, the core of that idea may well have been established in Mayo uh, as a result of the Dole government deciding that we wanted to get rid of the workhouses because they were associated with uh, the uncaringness of British, uh, the British government. So 
I haven't investigated that further, but it was definitely mentioned. It is in the book. It was mentioned by people as the solution to reduce the number of people in the workhouses. So I think that is also, uh, you know, quite a serious issue. Something that somebody should take up and see where that comes. From. Um, so maybe, and lastly, that that what surprised me as well is that the what I mentioned before is that the civil war did not end when uh, the IRA said the fighting is over. No, the Mayo Ben just and women because there were quite a lot of women in uniform also arrested by the pro-treaty so women on the anti-treaty side were participating in the fighting. I haven't seen evidence of them shooting, but they were certainly in a uniform and arrested by the pro-treaty as part of the uh, flying columns of the uh, anti-treaty but that the fighting continued so long into 1924 um, that for them, the Civil War really never ended. Somebody like Tom McGuire, who even in 19... Uh, in late 1980s, when I spoke to him in 1990, he, he still didn't draw pension, even though he had a right to it, because he didn't want to be associated with the state. That Republicans didn't use stamps because that was an example of the free state of acknowledging the free state essentially. Essentially, so those are little things that I came across that uh, that really uh, stimulate you when you are spending a lot of time in archives, which is not always stimulating, but these kind of gems really make it worthwhile doing it. That, no, it's always absolutely fascinating. On that, I'll say thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...